that tsunami of, of rumination and anxiety manifested up into obsessive compulsive disorder. And then at one point it blues right up into episodes of psychosis. He gave me a Logie and I don't, I don't really remember that night at all. I don't remember much of that year, in fact. Even when your brain is trying to utterly destroy you and everything you see to be real isn't real, you still find things funny because it's a, almost a new thing as well to have this kind of new feeling of happiness. It's like, oh, it's a much nicer, kinder, more long-lasting mm. thing. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Holloway, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy, and fulfillment along the way. I've been excited about all of our amazing guests so far, but I am truly in awe of our guest for today. I'd hoped for CZA to spark thought-provoking conversations that reveal the human being behind the 2D personalities we see most of the time and to look at the different ways we all interact with happiness. And there's no better person to explore that with than the legendary Osher Ginsberg, known variously as Andrew G, Andy G, and even Spidey, which you'll find out more about. And I'm so grateful that he warmly welcomed us into his humble home to do just that. To paint the better-known picture, there aren't many Aussies who have had a more successful TV and radio career, starting with Channel V through to hosting Australian Idol and now The Bachelor, Bachelorette and Bachelor in Paradise. Not to mention being the first Australian to host a primetime slot in the USA on Live to Dance with Paula Abdul, along with many other highly sought-after gigs, a very successful podcast of his own, and this year a book deal with HarperCollins. But what that book deal has revealed is a surprising and moving backstory that had such an impact on me, particularly because of my own, albeit less severe, struggle with anxiety and ability to mask it publicly with bubbliness and excitement. Under the effervescent and charismatic demeanour of Osher's TV persona sits a tumultuous lifelong battle with mental illness and addiction that he shares so openly in his new book, back after the break. From his name change to rehab to going plant-based to becoming a father, the book is a heart-wrenching, honest memoir that sheds light on the unfortunately still stigmatised issue of mental health and goes a long way to breaking that down. It's a really inspiring example, though, of how you can come through and find your yay again. And as part of that, Osh is also doing a live show that we'll share more details of at the end. This episode ended up being a little longer than usual, and even still, I feel like we only just scratched the surface, so you'll have to get yourselves a copy of the book to get all the details. And I had to restrain myself so much not to take up his whole day chatting and playing with his dog Frankie, who also makes an appearance in the show, which you'll hear. I've been so excited to share our open and exciting conversation that I spent all day yesterday editing just to get it out ASAP, so I really hope you get something out of it, and I hope that I've been able to do his incredible story justice. I did say it wouldn't just be women, wellness, and business, so here's a bit of a different pathway TA for today's episode. I hope you enjoy. All right. Thanks for coming to my house. Oh, thank you so much for having us in your house. It's great I'm to have you so here. I'm so excited. I've been nervous and excited about all of these because... 
it's a brand new skill. It's something completely, you know, out of the comfort zone. But with this one in particular, I think because you have such a story to share, I just want to do all sides of you justice. <laughs> I've been like, you can see my notes. I'm like, I need to not You've forget anything. You've got a lot of homework anything. there. <laughs> well, it's just, it's really grateful. I'm really grateful to have you here. It's a, a, a beautiful thing to, to have you both in, in our home. You know, I, I have skull cups because of you. Yeah. <laughs> And they're pretty special. <laughs> they are. They are very special. They're very special skull cups. And the amount of people that ask me, "Where do you get them?" Do they really? Yeah, people text me all the time. Oh gosh, asking where they where I get them. We should get you on commission or something. Uh, maybe. Um, but <laughs> no. I ended up having to get. You know what? Uh, I ended up having to get the Avanti ones that have the sealed bottom because oh. they they wash up a little easier. Yes, they're not great. The, I don't have staff to to clean mine <laughs> like you do at your cafe. Uh, we actually had a lot of people. Uh, they disappear. Like they we stopped serving most of them because they put their dirty cups in their handbag and walk out. Pilfering and our black them. cutlery as well. Piffle. It's disgusting. That's poor that's... cup. Who who goes? All the people. Who goes to a like a bloody vegan cafe in St Kilda <laughs> and goes, yeah, fuck this, I'm going to nick it. It's like, yup. Yeah. You know of, if you know about a vegan cafe, you know about karma. Yeah, like, exactly. You don't not know about it. <laughs> or maybe not. Maybe that's a thing. Maybe we're changing the mainstream, the, the people who do steal cutlery. Oh, boy. <laughs> Why do I get so many red lights all the time? Yeah. <laughs> Seven uh, parking tickets in a row. Oh, mate. The universe has got it out for some Tell people. Tell me about it. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So I usually start with the most down-to-earth thing about people because I think it's hard to make a story relatable when people seem really famous and glossy and intimidating, but your book pretty much goes straight to it, yeah. <laughs> which is absolutely amazing, and we'll get to that. But for those who haven't read it yet, you are pretty famous, so <laughs> can you give us an icebreaker? Like, do you and Audrey have fights about the best side of a Maxibon? Do you take your phone to the toilet with you? Do you oh. pick your nose? I think I'm the. Uh, this morning I didn't take my phone to the toilet with me. Or did I? Or last night? No, this morning. I I didn't take my phone to the toilet with me because I'm trying to stay off my phone in the first hour of waking up. That's great. And just trying to get that dopamine and serotonin from a more, how shall I put it, human place. Yeah. So I try to get that serotonin squirt from you know hugging my wife and kissing her good morning and and um. So I, I, I read my book on the toilet this morning. Yeah. No, I wonder if shampoo bottles are world over are lonely now that smartphones exist. I Nobody know. reads them anymore. I know, no. but I still feel like I know all the chemicals in Sodium lauryl sulfate is still, yeah. in your, is still in your shampoo, but nobody knows it because no one reads a shampoo bottle when they're not on the I toilet anymore. I miss the phenoxyethylene. Uh, really yeah. So, um, <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. So this morning, uh, had a bit of a struggly morning this morning. It was a bit... I've bit, been a bit under the pump um, the last week or so. So, yeah, I read read a bit of my book, read a couple of paragraphs of my book. Of your own book? This, no, someone else's book. <laughs> oh, I thought you meant. Yeah, for you someone. going back to read your For own someone book. Who, who slipped into, um, you know, episodes of psychosis and paranoid delusion based on, you know, the cataclysmic ramifications of climate change. You don't um, want to revisit that. No, I'm, I'm writing to dystopian science fiction, which is kind of weird, you know, it's a, it's a bit oh, odd. Wow. So I'm reading this full-on one about um, uh, AI at the moment, AI and bionics, um, which is Audrey and I just spent a week away in uh, it's a small island at the south and southern end of the Balinese um, archipelago. I think Bali is how you pronounce it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I fully bought into that. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I was like, 
wow, is there barley and beans? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but Audrey, Audrey read two books to my my ninety seven percent of one. She's a voracious reader. Yeah. And so I took that book to try and read on holiday, but she whipped through it before I did. So, um, so I'm just getting getting stuck into it now, which is a goodie. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so you read science fiction? Yeah, yeah, that's mainly my thing. It's a weird kind of. Uh, I either read nonfiction stuff about um, brains and how brains work, mm-hmm. or uh, kind of things in the philosophical bent, or just dystopian science fiction. Yeah. I'm just right into it. We all have our thing. You know what I discovered a couple of years ago in the throes of really bad anxiety and needing to channel into something. I did this project where I wrote down all the things that brought a little bit of joy. And noticed over a period of time the things that appeared the most. Yeah. And I was like, I'm not doing anything for joy creation, so I'm going to figure out what they are and then work backwards. And uh, one of the things was war. Love a good war journal, war documentaries, war Black Hawk Down, 10 times, watched it. Fascinates me. Whatever ticks your clock. I know. Whatever, you know, <laughs> as Elton John and John Lennon famously said, whatever gets you through the night. It's all right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Listen to that TV voice. <laughs> <laughs> I turned it on for you. Yeah. <laughs> I turned it on for you. So as you have briefly touched on, we've got a lot of nitty gritty to cover, yeah. which I'm very excited about. But I want to start with the the more surface level, sure. the, the Osher that people, that more people know, mm-hmm. because I think that is a really big part of seizing the yay, that you can appear like you're living a life that's full of yay, and there's always a lot of stuff beneath the surface that... It only comes out often after a realisation that sharing is going to help others or, Mm. you know, we all reach that point where we go from keeping it private to to sharing. But I thought for the start, because I've got some burning questions about Batchy and for anyone who is into a TV career or radio or anything, I would say, tell us about young Osha, but you were born young Andrew. I was, yeah. Which again, we can get to later. Um, But Osha actually means happiness happiness in Hebrew. It does. So Sarah means one who laughed in Hebrew. So I feel like we're onto something here. Very sees the A of us. Yeah. So I was incredibly surprised to hear that young Andrew was a fat kid on the doll Mm -hmm. before Cleo Bachelor of the Year. Yeah, absolutely. So take us back. I was. uh, I, I had a lot of anxiety as a kid. I remember growing up with it. And um, for me, you know, your, your tummy feels really weird when you're anxious. And a, and a good thing to make your tummy change the way it feels is to put food in it. So that's what I discovered, at least. And I ended up in uh, Weight Watchers at the age of eight. And then that kind of led to some pretty intense, you know, I, I lost a lot of weight, but then put it straight back on. Um, and then <clears throat> built up to a a peak of about 112 kilos when I was 17 in high school and um, managed to lose uh, – I've lost kind of a significant amount of weight a few times in my life. Um, this is actually the first time in my life I've managed to keep it off, which is nice. Um, made it onto men's health. Yes. Yeah, that's, yeah, this is – you know I'm in the management phase of that at the moment. So, uh, But I remember the – um, I was, I'd been working as a roadie for a band, uh, back in the olden days, there were things called cover bands and, uh, we did f- four 45 minute sets a night, five nights a week in the clubs and pubs of Brisbane. And I ran the light show. I was 17 and that was my first job in the music industry. 40 bucks a day is what I got paid. Not a lot. It. It's fine. <laughs> no compo, no training, no nothing. Just, you know, it's cash. Yeah, nice. It's a cash job. We all and, do it. <laughs> uh, yes, and I pay my tax, sure. And um, 
that band moved to Sydney, but I knew that uh, it probably wouldn't be a wise move to follow them down to Sydney, that they didn't seem a very robust unit, cohesive unit. And it turns <laughs> out I was right. They broke up about three weeks after they all moved here or four weeks after they all moved here. And, and where were you at this time? Not, not I, I was like, no, that's how we ended up unemployed because I was like, I'd rather not do anything yep. and figure something else out than leave my home. <laughs> for that so um i remember in that period of unemployment i was probably still around 100 kilos uh just turned 18 and i um so i was unemployed and i was like well you know i can sit around and i felt my being on the doll i don't recommend because your brain just kind of turns to mush because you're not this is back before the internet all right so there was nothing to really kind of stimulate you and uh, unless you're a really self, self-driven self kind of self-seeking kind of person. I didn't get into university. All my friends were at university. And so I was like, well, I can't, I'm not doing anything. But that means I shouldn't get ready for something. So I started just going on walks, um, tricked myself. The first walk was just to the letterbox, which was about 12 meters from my front door. And then the next day I, I was like, I'll just go check the mail. And I went, for, I walked past the letterbox and I walked around, the, you know, I could turn left, left and left again from our street. It was about a 600 meter loop. And um, then I picked up the mail. So my brain went, oh, yeah, we got the mail. So I kind of tricked myself into it. <laughs> and that little 600-meter loop went to – then I went to the next second street on the left, and that's about a 1,400-meter loop. Um, and I started walking that every day. And then one day I just started running, and I, I ran – I would count the telephone poles. And the telephone poles are usually only, I don't know, what, about 40 meters apart, 30 meters apart maybe. So I, the first day I ran 30 meters and then walked – to the rest of the 1,400 metres. The next day I ran to the second telephone pole, which was 60 metres, and then I walked the rest of the way. And then after about two weeks, I was running the whole way. And I reckon I went from I went from 100, I was 18, um, I went from 100 down to maybe, I lost 25 kilos easily Whoa. in about three months. Well, you know, you're 18 years old and... Yeah. You know, your metabolism is going for it. So <laughs> I, I, I lost so much weight so quickly, in fact, that guys I used to go to school with didn't recognize me when we were out. And that was good. Yeah, was that, was that <laughs> yeah. nice? And plus, I had, yeah. So that's what, but I, I learned, uh, and it was in that space that there was the first time that I was, you know, outwardly showing that, yeah, I'm not busy, but I'm, I'm getting ready for whatever it is that is coming. And outwardly, I'm projecting, a, I'm ready for whatever it is you got. And, um, I needed to get a driver's license. And then the guy I was learning to drive off, um, he had a band and I found out I was a lighting guy. I went, oh, yeah, well, why don't you come be a lighting guy for my bands? All right. So that was about, I don't know, I think I was unemployed for about three months, four months at that point. But, yeah, that, that's that's kind of repeated at many times in my life when it has come to breakthroughs in careers. It's It's been just because you're not doing any doing anything right now doesn't mean that you should do nothing you can actually if you're not doing anything it means you can do anything so just get ready for whatever it is that you want to do and along that path of getting ready and staying ready and being ready someone will see it and go oh yeah that's it and that's been the case every time i've had a a breakthrough in my career it's always that pattern has repeated Mm, it was so fascinating to read about that because i think at this end of things with hindsight looking at you being you know one of the most successful people in tv and radio and hosting (laughs) this blockbuster show going back and looking that there were multiple periods of unemployment and a lot of 
moving other people's shit around and working yeah. really long hours. I work, I work in the seasonal a industry, yeah. So, yeah. like, even, God, 2013, I was unemployed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 39-year-old divorce guy unemployed in another country. Yeah, yeah. that's nice. right. Attractive. <laughs> but so... It's really good to know that you can end up with quite an illustrious career, even off the back of, you know, big periods of not knowing what you were doing or what you wanted to do and not necessarily having family contacts or anything to sort of give you a boost in an industry that you think is quite hard to crack into. But you you started in radio as a promo driver? Yeah, yeah. I was driving um, like the... Back in the day, they they would have a, a station truck that had the logo on the side of the truck and... You'd drive around and you'd pull up to the street corner of some big main road and on the corner of, you know, Watsits and Hoo-Ha Street. And Are you say, like the Red Bull girls now? Uh, was that you? No, not really because you'd call it pretty much, I guess, yes. <laughs> I, where I was head-to-toe head in station logos with a big station logo down the side of a truck and then uh, it was a Nissan Patrol and, um, yeah, you just get on the phone and go, yeah, yeah, we're on the corner of, I don't know, St Kilda <laughs> Road and you know, the Great Western Highway or whatever, and we've got the Ice Girl cans of Coke and we've got some other stuff to give away and come down and tell me this and I'll give you that. Anyway, that's it. And I was getting eight bucks an hour getting paid for that. But uh, again, it was being in that situation, the serendipity of uh, of someone hearing my voice and the program director going, hang on, that guy's there's something going on there. And I might have had whatever it is they were looking for, in the, in the raw version, but it needed a lot of work to beat it into shape. So mm-hmm. I got on air quite quickly, but it took a long time to go from that to, you know, being offered a full-time gig. And uh, But and it's just that- nothing but hard work. It's like six, seven-day-a-week job, you know, six, seven-day-a-week work for four years, five years before I got a job in Adelaide, you know. Um, yeah. And that, that's the thing that people, a lot of people don't realise that by the time they saw me on Idol, which was 2003, I would had four years of cable television and nine years of radio. Yeah. Is that when Spidey was born? Uh, Spidey was, yeah, that was, it was like a hangover from the CB craze of the 70s and 80s, I think. Um, before mobile phones, people used radios to yeah. speak to each other. Um, <laughs> and it was only a one-way. So your phone's got two channels, the send channel and the receive channel, so you can hear you can speak and hear someone speaking at the same time, but a CB is only one channel, so it's oh. right. So you can only use it to transmit uh, or receive. You can't speak at the same time, so you have to kind of wait for someone to finish talking before you can talk. And to identify yourself, you'd have a call sign. And <laughs> so I think it was a hangover from that, and so I was given the name Spidey. We all had weird call sign names, but yeah, that was the. Uh... Is that because you love that that phrase? Not here to fuck spiders. No, but I have used that quite a lot in my life. I love it. It's, it's one it's, of my favourites. Yeah, yeah. It's the next level up from I'm not here for a haircut. So oh like, yeah, no. Yeah. Well, your hair's famous. <laughs> I'm not here. I'm not here for a haircut. Is a good one, but uh, I'm not here to fuck spiders. Is a is a classic. Oh, that that confused when I lived in the states. That really confused them. Yeah, they don't was, get it. No, there was two things that really. When I lived in America, I was in America for about ten years, all up. Uh, there was two that really confused. I'm not here to fuck spiders. And um, Bob's your uncle. Like, what do you mean? My my uncle's Who, who's my Bob? uncle's Larry. Who's Bob? Yeah. What do you mean? <laughs> Bob's what? <laughs> Robert J. Balfour. He was given the you know the protectorship of Ireland, and it was the nepotism was. Never mind. Yeah, it's too, it's too hard. <laughs> Bre- Brewer's Dictionary of Phrase and Fable. If you're ever interested, is one of the greatest books you'll ever read. If you're into that kind of shit. Oh, nice. It tells you all the you know the origins of all these things. Oh, yeah. Nick would love. It. See, that's what he reads in the toilet. Brewer's Dictionary of Phrase and Fable. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> tell you uh, tell you exactly who Robert J. Balfour was, yeah, and nice. hence uh, his nephew was the one that got the job, and he got the job because Bob was his uncle. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you not having Bob as your uncle, no, ending up eventually on Idol, yeah. and then the career progression that has gone on from then. I yeah. think one of the quotes that you say is, "It's not who you know, but who knows what you know." But yes. the hard thing for a lot of people is getting the chance to show that. Yeah. So how did you go from Spidey to, <laughs> you know, that gig? Was it a lot of serendipity or was it just true? Yeah. getting I, in front of people? It was, well, I believe it was. I believe it was, you know, there's there's a few things that – and I've done – and the thing is my story is reflected. I haven't stumbled across some extraordinary formula. formula. Um, it, it's – I've done, what, 256 episodes of my, my podcast so far and – if I've you know done a kind of career based kind of chat of two hundred and twenty of them, it's been the same thing every time. It's I worked my balls off. Mm. Uh, you know, when other people were not working, I was working. When I could have an opportunity to pick up more shifts, I picked up more shifts. I did every single thing that I could to get as good at it as I possibly could. Um, sometimes I did the job for free or very little money, and then when it came time to hire someone full time, there was no other obvious choice than me. I made myself undeniable. Yeah. If you're undeniable, you cannot be denied. So I just became undeniable in, in all, and the, the same happened in radio, and then the same happened at V. We just became undeniable. Like the, when they were looking for two people to host this, Frank. Hello, hello. Frank. Hey, buddy. I thought he'd join at some stage. Sorry, that, that's that's Frank. <laughs> hey, Frankie. Hey, buddy. Come here, champ. Frank. Frankie, buddy. He just wanted to get involved. Yeah, he always does. He's seizing his yay. Yeah, he does. <laughs> One of my favorite people on Instagram is Truthless. Uh, he always uh, talks about how to start a podcast. One of his memes is how to start a podcast. And it's like, yeah, number three to start a podcast, have a random dog barking all the time. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't have mattress ads on mine yet, but we're getting there. Oh, um, we know the guys are koala, so we can... <laughs> I slept on one. Man, they're good. Oh, they're anyway. Great. If you make yourself undeniable, you can't be denied. And so when it came time to have two people to host this colossal television format that the network was spending a lot of money on and was a huge hit overseas, when they looked around for two people to host a show, there was another team that they were trying to make. There was another team of two men that they were trying to make. Uh, they were quite high-profile um, TV and radio people at the time. But they weren't an organic couple. They brought them together and they were they tried they trotted them out at the ARIA Awards together. They tried to get them to do a few things together, but it didn't really mm. gel. But when it came time to look for two people, it's like, how could you look past these two guys, um, who along with Yumi and Chloe and a few other people were doing three hours of live television every single day, five days a week, and hosting these massive live shows on the back of a bus around the country. It was, you know, it was very hard work. The Channel V stuff, it was great fun, but it was hard work. So there was, you know, there's no way to look past us. Mm. And that's pretty much it. That's been the thing my whole career has been exactly that. If you, you've got to work so damn, I know I still work so damn hard. We're not shooting at the moment, but I'm, I'm working every single day. I'm working every day um, to to make sure that the the live show around the book happens to get more books out to, you know, all the other hustles that go along because I work in a seasonal industry. You know, every no matter what you are, no matter who you are on television, unless you host the news, one day your show is going to get cancelled. So what are you going to do? What do you what do you are you ready? Stay ready. Yeah, so it's, that's it's it. Scary, you know, I'm it? staying ready. I'm. You know, there's so many other projects that I, I'm constantly pushing forward and just kind of nudging forward, 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 forward. And then when the gap comes, boom, 
then you then you get it in there. That's so, so valuable. I think that one of the most important skills these days isn't anything other than agility yeah. in your skills. Like being – the world moves so quickly. We can't even prepare for the jobs that won't, we don't know exist yet. Yeah, I so think it's about just that. being I, ready. I think about that a lot and um, mainly because I'm totally primed from reading that latest Yuval Noah Harari book. But, <laughs> um, you know, the world in 10 years from now quite possibly will not have any of the same rules – that the world of the last 250 years has had. Mm. And that's that's really something, you know, that we may very well, I was thinking about this last night, we may not need spaceships, but we might, and our kids might, get to live life on a different planet, a planet that doesn't look like the one that has looked for the last 10,000 years, a planet that has different coastlines, a planet that has different weather patterns, a planet that has completely different work rules, you know, because, um, and Harari talks about it in his book, 150 years ago, uh, even though we're very culturally different, the three of us sitting in this room, our grandparents pretty much probably all had a boss, all right, and they went to work every day and then they brought home a certain amount of money. They got a food from, a, you know, a market and they cooked it for their kids and they lived in a certain... Like, no matter where in the world you were, there's kind of some rules that existed in human society. that mm. They may very well not exist in 10 years from now. And that's terrifying. But also, I'm trying to see it more and more as... Well, at least it's going to be interesting. <laughs> Absolutely. It's at least it's going to be interesting. to be alive. I, I think that too. I often think I've gone... You know, I was a lawyer before. I've gone from very stable predictable life yeah. to knowing where i'll be in 50 years yeah. I, could, I could legitimately stay in the one workplace in the same role yeah. and not develop another skill to a world where i don't know what i'm doing like we yeah. sell a commodity that's dependent on a tea farm and weather conditions in another country mm-hmm. and um, a cafe that depends on behaviors increasing and eating out and things that are so might not be relevant at all and i think yeah being someone who likes comfort zones but who has increasingly got an appetite to step out of them, getting comfortable with the idea that you shouldn't get comfortable ever is actually has been a big transition. I'd say that would be the most powerful, and I'm not, you know, it's not an original idea, but it's probably the most powerful thing you could instill in young people mm. would be whatever rules are around now, don't, get used don't to expect them. those rules to stay the same way. Um, for example, a lawyer what's a lawyer why is a lawyer great a lawyer is great because a lawyer has extraordinary knowledge of squillions of cases and things that have worked in the past being able to read micro expressions being able to see a room being able to see what an argument's going to be great what happens when facial awareness you know algorithms can read you know a deposition and go that's a lie and mm. then instantly cross-reference to 17 different cases of very very similar age groups and jury selection and judge and this is the best strategy forward boom like, what's a lawyer going to do? Yeah. You can't outthink a supercomputer like that. So, you know, law, is it a stable career as it used to be? Probably not. Yeah, maybe You know, not. 10 years from now, probably won't be. You know, that's like being open to the idea that the rules that we've had as a society and that we've grown up in and all of our grandparents, everyone we've ever, we've ever known have grown up in might not be the same rules in a very short amount of time. Being okay with that, I think, is the best thing you can possibly instill yourself with. Trying to fight it is just going to bring pain. Absolutely. Just going to bring pain because Mm. it'll go, it'll move. Because economically, it'll make sense to go in that direction. Mm. And we can't fight that. 
So to all our listeners, you can hear what a deep thinker Osher is, <laughs> <laughs> which is amazing. Sorry. Highly, highly recommend you read the book because there is so much more of that and some really amazing footnotes along the way of like the tangential oh. thoughts that come in yeah. halfway through. It's, it's amazing. So, I stole that idea from uh, an extraordinary Australian historian by the name of David Hunt. It was a mixture of that and uh, Eddie Izzard, uh, whom I stole the kind of footnote stuff from because I f- found it in, in writing the book, I found... I really want to say all this other stuff, but it'll take a thousand words to get to that point. But if I just write it as a footnote, you can kind of change channels over here and then come back to the main thing and then, and then you're back. I loved it. I think it was a very ins- a good insight into your the way your brain works. Yeah. But also in the depths of like some really heavy stuff, your sense of humor still came out. Like yeah. I'd, I'd be going from full on psychosis to like, oh, by the way, like cheese is not vegan or, you know, something like, yeah. and how funny is this cheese pun? Like yeah. it was just, it was a really great demonstration of how broad your personality Well, it's important is. to remember, like even, even when your brain is trying to, utterly destroy you and everything you see to be real isn't real you still find things funny yeah you still go well that's wow that's weird why would that person be wearing that on a day like today (laughs) i wonder what i wonder what happened to that person why did they end up you know seeking that out as a as a coping strategy what's going on in their life that's going so bad that they need that to numb the pain yeah that's the kind of shit i think about yeah (laughs) well pause on that because that is what I want to investigate in the rest of this. Yeah. But I just want to talk about Batchy quickly mm-hmm. because what a crazy ending to the last season of Bachelor and you've now started oh, filming. right. So if you're listening to this in five years from now, which you probably are, hello, how's yes. the future? Hope How it's good. How is it? Is it as different as we predict? Probably. There's a, there was a TV show. Let's say there is still a TV show. I think there probably will be. Yeah, back yeah. in season six of The Bachelor. We're up to season 11 now, as you, as you know. Yeah, our, our hero didn't. Didn't, didn't pick a, a didn't love. pick either. I uh, didn't find love, and this has happened before in various seasons around the world. And it's okay. It's an okay ending. It's an okay ending. Is he, it contractually allowed? Like that's what my legal brain first went to. Is are you allowed to do that? There's no contractual obligation to to fall in love. Do anything except show up. I think. Yeah. That's it. You've signed a contract that you'll be here on this day, and. You know, we'll shoot you. I think that's about. I don't know. I don't read their contracts. I'm just guessing, but I'm guessing that's what it is. No, there's like, and it, that's fine. It's if they didn't feel that they found someone that they want to be in love with. I mean, that happens at the end of every season anyway. At least once, someone of gets their heart broken. Yeah, but this time it was twice, and that's an okay ending. You know, we've all been there. Yeah, we've all gone. Ah. Oh, it's so close to being right, but I wouldn't be doing the right thing by you if I said yes. I'm so sorry. It's, it's not going to happen. Yeah. It's so emotional. <laughs> it was. It was really emotional. Yeah. Do you feel that on set? Like I feel like you're filming so many different snippets and not everyone is seeing what we see at the final cut with all the dramatic music. Yeah. And do you feel the emotion Absolutely. in the house? Absolutely. That's why I get so whispery. Yeah. <laughs> Because I've you got someone, <laughs> yeah, I've got either a guy or a girl standing in front of me going, oh, oh no, you don't want me. And now everyone in this room knows you don't want, and now everyone watching at home knows you don't want Millions me. Millions of people. Oh, that hurts. And you can't not feel that. It's very vulnerable. You can't not feel that. Yeah. And so it's, it's tough. You walk in there and you look at them in the eye and they're just, oof. Broken. Yeah, I'm so sorry. You got to go now. 
it's the part where you have to leave. <laughs> it's, it's brutal. I've, been, I've broken up with a lot of people. <laughs> and by, you've never had to do it by on proxy. television. Like. I've broken up with a lot of people by proxy. Yeah, yeah. Oh but that's the gosh. you know, but that's that's the job. The job is to um, manage keep, those emotions and keep though. our hero, keep our hero, keep him or her in the you know in the eyes of everybody else keep them not being the one that you know fires the final shot i'm the one that fires the final shot yeah and that keeps our hero in a different status than if they were the one that had to send them out the door yeah. i'm the one that sends them out the door yeah. and i'm grateful for that because it saves them that, that emotional pain. pain yeah and it saves it for everyone else as well i'm the one that comes in and does it and uh, but yeah i definitely feel it yeah you know, i wouldn't want to not feel it yeah um because you always it. wonder, not being in TV, you always wonder how much is contrived and then how much is literally the people Look, given free for all. Let's say, let's say you weren't, you know, let's say you weren't married and you had, you know, you're on, you're our bachelorette, and you, you know, what do you want to do for this day? Well, I really like golf. I really want the fella that I meet to be in a golf. And then our producer might go, okay, golf, all right, golf, golf. You know what's boring on television? Golf. <laughs> okay, mini golf. Mini golf. That's a good start. Okay, mini golf. Mini golf. What's good about mini golf? I know. Uh, how do we get there? Uber? No. Helicopter. Great. We'll take a helicopter. The mini golf. Where can helicopters land? I know. Top of a building. Great. We'll have a mini golf game on top of a building, and we'll take a helicopter there. Boom. There's your date. Right, and so, so that's how it works. Well, oh, that's an extreme example, yeah, yeah, but it's, yeah. that's the idea. It was like, okay, well, this is a, a thing that I'm gonna do. And like, okay, well, it's prime time TV. You've got to have color and movement. We're gonna have yeah. something to look at. Gotta have, you know, some jeopardy. Got to make it kind of, you know, will they, won't they? Yeah. Something's got to be. It's <laughs> yeah. got to be decision points, yeah. um, which in any, you know, in any fiction book, the decision points are always the crucial moments, and so that you've got to have these decision points and jeopardy. Because um, we're telling a story, and it's a love story, and you've got to show those decision mm. points. And so, yeah, that's how it kind of kind of happens. Oh, wow. Yeah. And how do you feel now these days that there's also memes, not only about your hair, but about the fact that all the contestants are way more excited to meet you than they are <laughs> well, <laughs> to meet their future this, lover? <laughs> I think about this a lot. I think about this a lot. And I think it's, you know, if you are on a, a, a reality television show, okay, you are... Um, the the currency you're trading in is your emotional reactions to events, okay? And those are worth nothing if they don't happen on camera. So you've got to be very careful about when you let the news out, okay? So uh, before you go on any of these shows, you go into something called lockdown. It happens on every reality show because you have no phone. Um, you know, you're fed and watered and, you know, you're safe and everything's fine. You just don't have a phone. And That's when we know our friends have gone on reality Yeah, you're, you're out of contact <laughs> with other people. Yeah. And the, the the main part about that is that so when you find out the big news, it might be your you've made it to Survivor, or you know you're going on Survivor tomorrow, you're going on on the barge tomorrow, you and Jonathan Lapalia, that's the only person you'll recognise. Everyone else you won't know. You won't know who's in what <laughs> tribe. It, that feeling is like oh. It's okay, this is the first time I'm meeting these other people in my tribe and all those things are happening on your face and the cameras can see it. You don't want to have that happen in a hotel somewhere in a country comfort, you know, locked away somewhere. So same, same with uh, with our show. They're in lockdown. 
you know, and there's wardrobe fittings and they get a nice suit or a nice dress. Oh, this is great. This is wonderful. And then, you know, they come to the limo and it's all, you know, it's all very, happens all very quickly once it starts happening. And then, oh, then there's the guy or there's the girl and, oh, wow, there's there's Nick or now in our case, Ali. Um, oh, wow, this is exciting. And then they go in and, where is this room? There's a lot of candles, a lot of flowers, wallpaper, drapes. This is exciting. <laughs> and, oh, there's other people here. Hello, there's other people here. Oh, yeah, this, looks, this feels like it looks on television. I don't know anybody. This is, okay. And then I show up like, oh, suddenly it's real. Yeah. Suddenly it's real because I'm there to go, here we go. Boom, game on. Yeah. And I think that's why they do it. Yeah. I think that's why they have the reaction. Um, I think you're playing yourself down, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I, I mean I mean it's real. When I yeah. show up. It's happening. It's happening. It's now it's on. Yeah. Now it's for real because yeah. I'm doing the speech with the rose and the, you yeah. know, and here's the special and here's the... Here's the business. Here the here's things. the maths. And yeah. all right, now go. Fall in love. Yeah. Off you go. But that's really nice. It's a really lovely job to do because we get to help people fall in love. And that's all, that's a really nice thing to do. Yeah. Uh, it's really nice for me as a man to watch other men go through that. Um, particularly before I wasn't in the shape I am now, I'd see other men who had bodies that I wished I had. And I'd go, <laughs> yep, okay, so you've got this mad rig and you know, you've got a great business and da-da-da. But you're still single. Something's going on. Yeah. Something's going on that you haven't been able to find that thing. Yeah. And watching them go, oh, somewhere in the middle of all the episodes go, that's what it is. And they have that discovery and you go, now, there you are. The boy becomes a man. Yeah. And then they, boom, and they fall in love and it's really nice. It's and actually an awesome social experience. It's really lovely. Yeah. And that's one side of it. But then also the other side of it happens when we you know, when we air it a few months later, when I get sent photos of there's five people on a couch built for three, you know, and people are watching the show together. It's terrible, terrible for our ratings because there's four TVs that aren't on. Yeah. But um, <laughs> people watch the show together and it's really nice. Yeah. And that's re- that's a really lovely thing to give uh, people that don't know each other an opportunity to have a, something uh, something to connect over, yeah. and that's that's really lovely. The best thing about it is you do know it's real because there are so many relationships that continue afterwards. True. And a couple of our friends, we have Timmy Robards and Anna, who were the first wedding. They were. And Georgia and Leroy are good friends of ours who are coming on next week to the podcast. Boy, howdy! But your relationship is actually the longest lasting. Of all of the relationships, oh, no. Tim and Anna, Tim and Anna, they started in season one. Oh, okay. Second well, close, close second. Yeah, close we started second. in season two. Yeah, I, I turned up to work. With your wife, Audrey. I turned up to work one day and there's this beautiful Fijian girl with Disney princess eyes who, you know, I, oh, I try to open the batting with, oh, so did you see Game of Thrones last night? <laughs> did you see the Red Wedding? She goes, ah, it wasn't a surprise. I read all the books. <gasps> she's you read a, books? She's a reader. <laughs> I was done. All over. Yeah, yeah. So we met. We met <laughs> on season two, and um, we've been together. We've been together ever since. And um, you know, I'm really grateful to her in a schoolian ways. You know, I, um, I've got the but with Zoe Norton Lodge, who's a, a very, very talented uh, actor and comedian and, and producer and director. She and I basically turned this book into a live show, and. Uh, I, I took some of the concepts in this book and some of the sticky parts, and I, I wrote songs about them. And uh, so there's a. It's in Melbourne, actually, 14th of December. You I was going to say we've got tickets. Oh, really? I'll put a link to the how to buy tickets in the show notes. But there's this <laughs> so there's excited. this song that we kind of finish with this big power ballad, right? Um, because you can, so you may as well. Is this the first time you've got the guitar out in, in a long time? In a yeah, while. yeah. It's nice to be playing music again. And I know just this morning because the show's in two weeks. Oh, I better learn the songs again. So this morning, I'm, you know. <laughs> Because I haven't played the song since uh, August, so I got because we're doing another show in Sydney as well on twentieth of October, and so I was going to play the songs again. And I'm even just going through the chords. I'm getting goosebumps thinking about this song because this, you know, this is the. I won't 
spoil the ending, but the final song's about my wife. And um, oh, cute! Yeah, I'm like fully getting goosebumps, even just playing the chords through. It's like, oh, it's really nice. And it's so really lovely. This is a new thing for you, goosebumps yeah. to music. And this is one of the things I want to spend the rest of the time that we have talking sure. about. So the book, back after the break, if anyone hasn't read it, please go and get it right now. It's one of the most incredible books I've read in it's a long time. It's very sweet of you to say thank you. Very moved by it. And it's just such a powerful example of the fact that our outside lives, it's absolutely important and appropriate to have a private life behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. But you have shared so openly how different, I think, in your episode with uh, Todd Sampson. Mm. He talks about the disconnect between the Wikipedia you Mm. or the batchy you that we all see and the you that you've recently shared. Yes. And the story that of everything that was going on behind the scenes that no one really knew about. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about that? For anyone who's read the book, you will know what I'm talking about. If you haven't read the book, obviously you will read some more, but it always is nice to hear it. About why? In your own words, just what you were going through, where it all started. I think you described it as, what was it? Agony would come and take a shit on your brain. (laughs) (laughs) I, I got born with a different brain. I got born with a brain that's very, very good at ruminating anxiety and, um, obsessional tendencies and I probably didn't give myself the best start or the best chance because I also then because your brains keep developing until you're about 25 and I did a pretty good job of just drinking giant holes through my prefrontal cortex um, and hippocampus uh, at that time and then there's a few other things, you know, you know, when you pile, you know, drinking and using on top of a brain that's already in, got these tendencies, then certain switches in your brain get turned on, uh, for me at least, and it turns some switches on in my brain that were very, very hard to turn off. And once those, you know, switches were turned on, and uh, the, the trickle becomes a stream, becomes a creek, becomes a river, becomes a flood, becomes a deluge, becomes a tsunami, and it's impossible to stop. And um, that tsunami of, of rumination and anxiety uh, manifested up into... Uh, obsessive compulsive disorder and then at, at, at one point about four and a half years ago now um, it, it, it blues right up into um, episodes of psychosis uh, which included paranoid delusions and, and seeing things and hearing things and it was very very scary and I don't recommend it and it took a lot of drugs um, medication so I should say a lot of medication a lot of treatment a lot of work to to, to sort that out and and, and heal um or get towards a place where i could heal and for me it was really it was really important to to write this and to have this conversation because in the middle of all that uh, certainly when i was in the middle of the psychosis and having episodes of that it was so physically painful and it's not just mental anguish it's actual actual physical manifesting as physical pain um hands around my throat it felt like i had you know knots in my stomach and it felt like i was being kind of hit with a like a like a taser you know my whole body would flinch i was twitchy it was weird uh, you know one eye would blink independently from the other and it was all very very painful physically to to be in it and i couldn't see a way that it was ever going to be any different and it was so overwhelming i thought, started to think of you know, a permanent way to, to stop that pain. And that manifested in such a, it wasn't a scary thought at all. It was just such a kind and perfectly rational and beautiful and wonderful idea to me that gratefully I knew in that point, it's like, oh man, 
I've got to warn people about this. I've got to tell people that it's not a scary thought when you decide, oh, that's how I'll stop all this. It's actually the best idea you've ever had. Shit, I've got to tell people. I've got to tell people that it's not going to come as a frightening thing. It's going to come as the greatest, kindest, most wonderful idea you've ever had. And so very slowly I started, you know, talking about that and started doing more work in, you know, suicide prevention. And I, I through the, I got a, got funded from Movember USA to start a podcast with Movember over there. And, and I started a podcast, just basically start, that's how I first started talking about this stuff, just through that podcast. Because while I didn't share my own story, I started to hear and share the stories of others around suicide prevention and, you know, just kind of getting more and more traction around there. And, and certainly as I was, I was still quite sick when I started that. And um, as I was going through it, and I, you know, and I'm hearing other people talking about how desperately sick they were and that they had indeed gotten a lot better that I, you know, I, I felt like maybe, you know, I don't know how to get it better now, but these people have figured it out. Some people have figured out how to make it better. So maybe there is a way that I don't know. And, you know, that started with listening to my doctors and doing what my doctors told me and doing the work. You've got to do the work. You can't just take the pills and mm. think it'll stop. No, <laughs> you've got to do the work. Um, the, the meds, uh, and in my case, there were a lot of them, um, uh, two kinds of antipsychotics, an SSRI and uh, amino ketone at one point of different various and dosages, dosages and variances and up here and down there and up there and down here. That's like essentially it's the, it's the five-point safety harness mm. that you wear so you can do the scary stunt driving that you need to do to get through the forest of fear, mm. all right? You can't just take the drugs and go, all right, I've taken this drug, on with my day. No, nah, that's not it. It's the... It's, it's the knee brace. It's the strapping that the physio puts on you that you go, okay, now you, your joint's going to be able to move in this plane of motion, but now you've got to lift the weight. Now you've got to do the physio rehab exercises so that joint gets strong mm -hmm. in a way that you've never strengthened it before. And one day we'll try to see how you can go without the brace. And so I just had to do the work. And if I hadn't heard those other people telling their story, I wouldn't have known that there was a – because I couldn't see it. I couldn't see that there was – Another, a, way a way out and that's yeah. the that's the fallacy when you you, you get sick in the way i did I, at least the way i found that the fallacy was that that this thing was only happening to me and it You're was going to be a little the, snowflake yeah yeah i'm a special snowflake <laughs> that i'm not this thing is only going to happen to me and i'm the only person that knows what it feels like and this is how it's going to be forever but one in four australians live with complex mental illness so i'm one of millions i'm not a special special human being and no mental state is a permanent state. But when you're in it, you actually can't see that that's, those two things are facts. So for me, it was very, very important to talk about those things and start sharing in the hope that when other people heard my story, they might have a similar experience to what I did of going, oh, okay, well, I, I can't see a way out, but that person over there is describing enough of what I've been through and I can see where they are now. So maybe there's something between here and there that I don't know yet. So mm -hmm. I'm going to go try and find that and hopefully work on it. And um, you very descriptively share that part, what, yeah, it, what, what it did feel like and, and the bits that I don't think most people would share or even think other people were interested in, but there is, there's so much in it that someone in the throes of that mm. would feel, oh, as soon as it's, it's described in someone else's experience, it validates it. Suddenly. Yeah, true. And, and true, it's true. Not, you're not as scared as you are. Yeah. I, um, to a much, much lesser degree, have had quite severe anxiety which in in some stages when i wasn't looking after myself was um, manifested as depression and 
in those times, I would be, I was traveling in Europe and the sun shining on my face and everything is amazing. But I would just feel like wrapped in glad wrap, like really tight and you just can't access mm. the universe. Yeah. And hearing other people say that, you're like, I'm not going crazy. It's, it's, you can't separate yourself from those thoughts until mm. you can identify them. Yeah. But how you're obviously now very self-aware and very enlightened about how to treat your brain right, why it's special and how you're triggered and what, what yeah. happens. But how did it deteriorate to that? Like at what point did you first, was this in childhood or was this post-drug um, use in your teens or like what was it, chicken and egg? And, it's, and a then, lot. It's, a, it's a lot. You know, it's a yeah. lot. And that's kind of why it's a book and not a, and not a blog post. Yeah. Because, you know, these things don't happen in, in, in a, a vacuum. They don't happen in a vacuum. And I, I basically wanted to write it so to say, like, here's all the red flags and the slalom that ended up to the crash. Mm. So just letting you know, um, these are the things that start happening along the way. And, you know, you start to lose jobs and you start to lose friends and people start to, you know, avoid you and all kinds of things. And, um, you know, there was obviously there was, there was childhood trauma and, um, that's a that's a factor in, in um, complex mental illnesses. Is, um, and you were uh, in New York for September 11th. Yeah, yeah. And I'd, that was a big I contributor. Got, yeah, I got PTSD off the back of that. There was a lot of stuff that was that was happening. Um, in fact, when I went proper off the edge, um, I was actually off meds because I, I was doing so well. I was doing really well. On the first season of Bachelor um, here in Australia, I was out here for 10 weeks on the shoot and I, I was really healthy and I was running a lot and I was, you know, feeling really good. And I presented to my doctor and I was like, Hey man, things are going really good. I've got a job again. Everything's all right. So at this point you already had been through a bit of a crash, but then. Yeah. I mean, I'd gotten sober and you know, yeah, I was doing pretty good and I wouldn't mind trying. I was trying to date and dating on meds is hard and because the, 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 the tinkle that you're hoping for in the bottom of your tummy is chemically numbed. Suppressed. So you kind of wait for it and it's not there. And you're like, I don't know if it's there or not. Is it? Is it? I don't know. <laughs> um, so I said, hey, man, what do you reckon we could give it a shot while I'm here under supervision? Yeah, all right. So I gave it a shot. and But I didn't want to admit that I was every day was getting worse and worse. And I didn't – I wanted so much to not have to admit that I couldn't deal with it. Um which was a you know the wrong move, and um, and at this point you hadn't had psychosis. No, to now no. it had just been. But that was there. You know, I was there was a lot of red flags. I was under a lot of stress. I was we haven't rolled into the second season of Bachelor. I was effectively unemployed again. Um, I was in this weird on again off again relationship that was very very intense, and then was not happening at all, and then very intense, and then not happening at all. Like within hours, it would fluctuate between those two states. Um, I, you know, my, I was not sleeping a lot. I was like, um, sleeping about four or five hours a night. And when I did sleep, I'd wake up in the morning and, um, I'd strip the bed like it was laundry day. Cause I'd thrashed around so much and uh, my dad got sick back in Brisbane and yeah, there was a lot of factors that, that led up to it. It's not a plus B equals psychosis. It's, and it's not even one plus one plus one plus one equals psychosis. It's almost like 1.2 times 1.2 times 1.2 times 1.2 the the curve is very subtle at first but then it doesn't take much to just tip you once you start edge. adding those stressors on top of things very quickly the graph starts to hockey stick and yeah. before you know it you've got no control over what's going on and what was that 
tip you over the edge moment? Oh, it was, it was all those things. It was like five different things at once. And then just one day. Happened. And then one day I just woke up. You and just had it. an episode, was it? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. One day I just woke up and and that was it. I, uh, you know, I started seeing these really troubling visions. I, I was unable to rationalize the thoughts away. Um, uh, as far as I was concerned, the sea was going to rise 15 meters that day and I was the only one that knew. And it was very, very, very frightening. Yeah. Very, very, very frightening. And I was, you know, seeing seeing as, as if the ocean was already 15 metres above my head. I was living in Venice Beach at the time and, you know, seeing waves crashing against the, the houses on the boardwalk and seeing those Baywatch towers because they've, they've got a concrete block underneath them. For, you know, anyway, I'm seeing those Baywatch towers like as if I, cause I like to scuba dive, so I'm, I'm seeing them from underwater, you know, kind of like floating against the mooring, kind of being, you know, struggling against the chain as the as the swell pushing them back and forward and it was really really weird it was very very tough um, mm. because I'd never had to question my reality before mm. and then you know suddenly I'm in the situation where my brain's telling me these things are happening but no one else can see it no one else is afraid of it so it was really hard I, I can't even imagine did, did it actually present to you as if it was happening right in front of you. Yeah, yeah. And then did it did it break and you sort of snap back? It would come and go, it would kind of glitch in and out a bit. Like, uh, if you, have you ever watched the show Mr. Robot? No. Ah, uh, right. So, Mr. Robot, uh, picture, the premise is pretty pretty good, actually. Picture if Facebook, Google, Apple, and every bank in the world was one company, mm. and then Anonymous hacked them. Wow. Yeah. And yeah, and that's episode one. <laughs> um, but there's a my anxiety couldn't cope with that. <laughs> Rami Rami Malek is the actor that plays um, Elliot, who's, who's who's the main character, and it's an extraordinary representation visually of what how psychosis can appear. So yeah, she's watched the entire first season. This is what she's like when she watches TV shows. <laughs> You've watched it apparently with Christian Slater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So thanks, Nick. Yes, yes, yes. If I I could, the hacker, right? Yeah, yeah, the hacker. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) I got a very very short-term memory. (laughs) But you know, so for example, when in Mister Robot, when he turns and he talks to his dad, and then he turns around, and then his dad's not there again, or someone, you know, the whole scene plays out, and then you realize, hang on, the other person didn't say anything to his dad at all. Oh, fuck, I'm going to spoil the shit out of it if anybody hasn't seen it. <laughs> um, anyway, that's a, that was a really, a very, very, very good, uh, whoever's written that has been through or knows someone who's been through the same sort of shit that I went through. So, like, I remember saying to Audrey, uh, that's it. That's what it was like. Kind of glitches in and out. Um, almost like if you're looking out a window, all right, and there's just enough light in the room that you can see a reflection of what's going on in the room or yeah. elsewhere. So you've got this long, almost a double image. Um, occasionally the image on the other side of the window takes your attention. Occasionally the image on the reflection of the window takes your attention, but the image on the, the one in, on the actual glass started to get fuller and more pronounced. That was the thing that my brain was inventing. And then, oh, reality again. Then back, and I'm like, oh, I couldn't quite. Yeah. It was, it was fucking bad. <laughs> it was bad. It's a miracle that I didn't pick up a drink. It is a miracle that I didn't pick up a drink. I just knew, because I've been sober for about four years by this point, I just knew that the one thing that would make this exponentially worse would be if I started drinking, yeah. if I tried to drink at this problem. And I'm very, very, very lucky that I did not. Yeah. For I'm 100% certain had I been drinking, 
I would have just fuck it. Yeah. And I would have looked. I would have found that permanent solution without a doubt. Is that because of having the right support around you? Yeah, absolutely. I was really lucky to know something was wrong at every point in my life. Uh, where I've hit a crisis point around my brain, I've kind of almost like skilled up in the management strategies. So when I first got diagnosed with uh, PTSD, um, my psychologist at the time in the early 2000s showed me a thing called cognitive behavioral therapy, which if anyone's done it, it's kind of like a self-administered rationalization of what's going on in your head. Mm, I use it a lot. So I had those... I I use it too. It it doesn't leave much room, if any room at all, for emotion. So I'm not a massive fan of it these days. But it is very helpful to go, oh, that's what that that is. Okay. And so I had that skill set. And then so when it came time to get sober, a lot of getting sober is questioning the habitual behaviors and and what it is that you do. And essentially what's wild is the the core text of the um, uh, sobriety-based step-based fellowship I'm a part of um, the core text of that fellowship pretty much is CBT but they wrote it 30, 40 years before <laughs> um, Beck and Thingo wrote it um, and I've probably got those names wrong anyway um, so then when I came to get sober I was like oh I know this I've got this skill set but then it kind of added a little bit more on top of that it's like, okay so I kind of then got to there and then hang on this person just come in and they're being an asshole wait a second are they just being and I'm making them an asshole worse are they just being and I'm the asshole? <sighs> Sorry. <laughs> so, you know, I had that skill set. So I knew enough to question my initial thoughts. Yeah. So then when everything went horribly, horribly wrong, I called up my mentor. And I said, mate, this is like you live near the ocean in, in, in Orange County. You'd better get, get, up, get out of there because it's bad. You know, you, you know. I can't stop thinking about this. It won't, you know, and he goes, mate, you, you're lucky that you know something's wrong. Um, you see, the, the, the problem with people who are experiencing psychosis is that a lot of the time they don't realize that they're experiencing that psychosis yeah. because it's, if you've never had to question your thoughts, why would you even think of that? Why would you even question that? What is presenting to you as 100% reality, as you are sitting across from me in stable right now, why would you ever question that that is actually there? Because your whole life up until that point, you've never had to question. You can reach out and touch it. It's there. So the, the same, just but your brain's distorting what's there and what's not so as far as you're concerned it feels real it's very frightening um but i was lucky to know that something was wrong mm. i was really lucky to know that something something was wrong so i knew to call someone that's the other thing i knew to call someone and um over the coming weeks and months when it it carried on cause it doesn't didn't get better for a long time i would have to reality check a lot and i still do it i still reality check with audrey say like, honey i've got this feeling how do you feel about this news that i've just read um when you read that, what's your reaction? Mm. She tells me her reaction. I'm like, okay, I might go with that. What yeah, mine's extreme. <laughs> what, what, I'm, what I'm going for is calling for, you know, that we sell everything and move to the mountains. Um, so I just, I don't think I mentioned, uh, Osh's trigger is climate change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just in yeah. case you were wondering Yeah, which about we, uh, we spoke about a little bit before. So yeah. that was, my, that was my, my, big, my big trigger was that I believed that, you know, climate change was the full ramifications of which were happening today and no one else knew. So that's still around. That, that pathway is still in my brain. And when I do get those triggers, I still, you know, f- feel part of that. And I'm not on medication at the moment. I've worked oh, uh, very, very hard. I don't know if it's a thing to thank you, but I don't know if it's a thing to be congratulated about. It's just a thing that I'm able to do at the mm. moment. If I needed to go back on it, I'd probably do it tomorrow yeah. if I needed to, because life's just too short to to be the person that I become when I am in that state for myself and for others. Mm. And it's not worth the way it would degrade my relationship with people I work with, or you know, my wife and kid. Mm. So 
I'll do it tomorrow. Um, I've right. actually taken SSRIs before. Right. And for the same thing, the ego that stops you for so long because you're the stigma or the I can yeah. do it myself or the I can't, can't be that bad. Like I don't, I don't need that. You realize any moment that you're not a fully functioning emotion feeling human yeah. is a waste of time. And well, well yeah. And who you are for yourself and for others is, yeah. is, is the important thing. And so um, so I'm not on them at the moment, but that simply means that I need to – my management strategies have to be I, – I do heavy lifting. Yeah. yeah so that, that book right there on the table, though, that's where I sit down. I write my – I write my 20 things I'm grateful for every morning. I, you know, write my fears down and that. I write my, you know, every day I have to reset, reset the clock every day. I, you know, go downstairs, I throw kettlebells around downstairs. You know, my hands are all opened up. My calluses are opened up from lifting from heavy shit. Um, but I need do to do that. Lift? I, yes, because lifting and particularly compound movements for me, um, it releases dopamine, serotonin, nor- norepinephrine and endorphins into my body that, are, you know, scientifically proven to shift your mood. Um, I connect with people. I'm grateful that you're here today so I'm able to connect with you and Nick and, you know, Audrey's here and, you know, these are things and I try and do meaningful and purposeful work and I try to be there for my family and then 10 o'clock at night I'll, you know, put my head on the pillow and go, ah, oh, made it. Yeah, I did it. And then, you know, try and get those eight hours and then do it again tomorrow. Yeah. But that's what I need to do. Yeah. That's what my life is. Um, I'm it's- grateful for it because it means I'm a little more deliberate about the way I live. Um, I don't just kind of follow a set pattern and um, I'm very you know I plan my days out quite intuitively and um, mm. quite religiously I plan it plan it out um, but that's that's what I need to do to get through my day um, yeah and like I said right now it doesn't involve medication but you know I, I, if at the moment I'm struggling a bit and um, you know if this goes on for any more than you know a couple of weeks I'll, I'll probably pull the trigger to be honest mm. And thank you even more then for letting us into your home because I get very anti-people-y. When I start to struggle, I find that the anxiety just means I can't do it. Well, the, the big thing that I've learned in that um, over, the, over the time is that the, the, your brain actually has a, um, a, a, a trick that it does is that it's a thing called fusion, is that if you run away from the fear and you push it as hard as you can – what you're actually doing is increasing it with the energy that you're using to push against it. And it'll just be bigger the mm. next time you confront it. Mm. So it feels counterintuitive, but it is, you just got to go into it and mm. be with it. Mm. And it will, you know, in, in many ways, it's like when you go into a public toilet uh, at a <laughs> festival or something <laughs> and you go, oh my God, I'm going to die the smell is horrendous, and then 45 seconds later, you can't smell it anymore. Yeah. All right? It takes a little bit longer than 45 seconds, and it's uncomfortable. Um, but, but you feel better. <laughs> after a while, the you go, actually, no, I can be with this. And so in my experience, I know that if I feel uncomfortable about, you know, oh, don't want to go to this dinner or don't want to go to this event or don't want to do this thing, it's a sign that oh, I've got to go. I've got to go. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm grateful to have you here. I'm grateful to have you both yeah. here. <laughs> so one of the things that was really reassuring about the book is that obviously you can come out the other end, even from, you know, regular suicidal ideation. But the other thing was that you can hold down a very successful career <laughs> as well. Like that's one thing to sort of get through it. Yeah. But, you know, it's another to do a particularly public job and not have anyone really notice, not have your job suffer for it yeah. and in the book you mentioned that you know season one and two of the bachelor were 
uh, at the Bachelor, which would have been probably the Bachelorette at the same time, and going back and watching them, I was doing my research, and you can't, I mean, I know now, so yeah. I can, you know, identify some of the pictures you share in the book. Are you looking very happy outwardly, but also quite hollow in the eyes? But your your show self is completely flawless. Well, it was having something to, and the people at Tan and the people at Warner Brothers, they, they knew. Uh, but I just found that if I let them know and say, this is what's going on with me, here's the management strategies I've got going on, here's the meds I'm on, here's the doctors that I'm seeing, and, and you, know, uh, you know, you can see that I'm still able to do the work, and they were very, very, very supportive. And I found that, you know, as long as you tell people, you know, this is what's happening, here's my management strategy, and this is me still able to do the job, they were, quite, they were fine with it. Um, they were very, very kind and, you know, offered a great amount of, you know, support uh, for me. Um, and to be honest, like having somewhere to go, somewhere to, somewhere to be, something to do is really important. And so to be at work and be on camera, I was like, oh, finally, I don't have to think about that shit all day. I can just be here, do this thing for these people, you know, be here for these, you know, this, this great crew that, that everybody's, you know, up early to do this thing for with us today. There's 40 people here on set. Okay, I'm here. I'm going to try and get this in one take. To make sure that we get on with our day and you know make sure that these people can fall in love great let's do this and that's that was a really great thing to be able to focus on and and, and give me a respite if you will mm. and then we sit around and wait for three hours for them to you know <laughs> do shoot pretend arrows or whatever at each other <laughs> that's when the worrying would start in my brain again and then we come back on and we do the business and whew, relief so yeah. when you were actually seeing me you were seeing me in a state of relief yeah um, there was some reprieve from yeah yeah true True, true. And, and that's always been the way with me. Uh, I was kind of lucky early on. I knew mm. um, that, was a, that was a state that I found great, great solace in. Um, I pursue it differently now. I don't, I don't hunt it down as ravenously as I used to. Mm. Um, I'm a lot more. Uh, when I'm on camera or when I'm on stage now, I'm very much more about how can I connect with these people better rather than, oh, thank goodness, I'm finally in control, yeah. which is what I used to be. Yeah. And it's interesting seeing how that approach has changed over time as well. It, in the beginning of juggling this and working, there were times when I think you described it as being a selfish, arrogant fuckwit mm-hmm. and not being as aware of your the impact of your actions and also just dealing with so much in your own brain that you, you don't really have as much time to deal with other people. Yeah, other people didn't know that. Oh, just being a selfish, arrogant yeah. fuckwit. Yeah, like, you know, you didn't, you didn't remember getting your Logie from Dave Hughes. Nope. How do you repair those relationships and has the podcast for you been a way to start to show, you know, you, you've changed so much that, yeah. that you changed your name. I mean, yeah, let's yeah. about that. Well, I was able, to start with, I was able to sit down in a podcast with Husey and talk to him about it. Yeah, which is great. And say, hey, man, look, I'm sober now, but, you know, I was on, I was, I, was, I think I took two Percocet and washed them down with about four beers before we even got into the limo. And then, yeah. He gave me a Logie, and I don't, I don't really remember that night at all. I don't remember much of that year, in fact. Uh, and so you actually, you know, have a, have a chance to try and make an amends, and you know, where it's where it's not going to cause harm to to them or others. I've tried to, you know, reach out and try and clean up the mess I made. Um, where doing that would cause harm, I try to live my life in a contrary direction to the way I had at the time where I might have hurt that person. So that person might never hear or see me again, but um, I know that I'm doing an honour 
and in service of trying as hard as I can to be in reverent respect to the, the mess that I made by living my life in a way that would never do that again. Mm. And I, you know, think of those moments. As far as changing my name goes, look, sobriety is for me. I've taken a spiritual path to sobriety, and that involves a lot of humility, a lot of understanding that there's something bigger than you in the world. And along the way, you know, I met I met a Kabbalist mystic who, you know, was a really fascinating cat. And, uh, <laughs> You know, I'm a pretty cynical guy. I'm a pretty skeptical guy. And um, you seen the light. He well, he he was like he had enough on the table. I was like, all right, man. I'm I'm a pretty skeptical human being. But what you've just said, okay, there might be some merit. I'm listening. What do you got? He says, mate, if you change your name, you change your life. I was like, okay. And then a couple of years later, I'm like, I remember that guy told me if I change my name, I change my life. I think I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. And I was on my 38th birthday. I'm 44. So, Which is quite late in the piece. Yeah. How did you go about it? Did you announce or you just started so, dropping hey, it? Oh, by the way, I changed my name. Yeah, I know. I met this you know, spiritual guy I've been studying and, you know, going to this, you know, I find a great amount of relief in it. And uh, if you call me that, that would be really great. It's fine. If, it's fine if you get it wrong for a year, I don't mind. Yeah. Uh, We're in a transition me. phase. Yeah, yeah. My friend Zamet says, oh, you've undergone an aggressive rebrand, mate. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> such a rebrand. No more Andrew G. That's right. That's right. And the men's health thing was the, aggress- the, 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 the change the logo. <laughs> oh yeah, that was like the campaign launch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we changed we change the logo, change we change the name, change the company name, and then we change the logo. <laughs> oh, and and you've gone vegan, so you've changed the content as well. I've been vegan since fuck. Was that early in the piece? Two thousand two, and and what brought that about? Um, actually, around ninety seven, ninety eight was the first. I'd you know never really thought. I think I was as had as much derision towards vegetarians and vegans as, you know, most people who don't know, <laughs> who, who are worried about anything that's different from what they experience. They approach it with, you know, fear and that fear manifests as mocking. And then I kind of, I'd always been concerned about the environment. And then I learned that it takes about a hundred times more land to produce a kilo of animal protein than plant protein. And I Learn that it takes about 15,000 litres of water to make one kilo of beef versus 1,250 litres of water to make a kilo of soybeans. Like, it seems to be an enormous waste of resources that people could either be using. And then you're like half of the food on earth that's grown that people could eat is fed to animals for slaughter. And uh, that makes no sense. Mm. You You know, you would waste resources at such a scale. So... Pretty early in the, you know, around about, I think chicken was the first to go, around about 95, 96. Um, stopped eating chicken regularly and then very, very slowly over the course of time. By about 90, by the time I moved to Sydney, I was pretty much fully, utterly vego. Occasionally still had eggs. And then in 2002, that was it. Um, so, yeah, that's nearly nearly 20 years now. Oh, wow. Well, what I love that you said about the book is that you love animals, but you're not so much about animal protection as you are human protection yeah true which Um, is resonates very strongly with us having matcha milk bar where we obviously adore animals and but we haven't taken the animal cruelty stance because it doesn't resonate with the masses of people who can identify with the human side of it that is just about sustainability it is it is and you know a a predominantly meat-based diet for us as a species is completely unsustainable we talk a lot about co2 but we want to talk a little about the methane produced by by beef cattle. I haven't got a tinfoil hat on. It's scientifically proven. There's plenty of peer-reviewed papers. <laughs> he does have a tinfoil hat on, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> there's plenty of there's plenty of peer-reviewed science that you can go and look at to go and see that I'm not, you know, talking out of my hat 
that there's actually, you know, this is real. It's absolutely mm. real. And if you run a business, why would you use 15,000 liters of raw material to produce one final kilogram of product when you could use 1,250 liters of raw material to produce an equivalent kilogram of product? And that equivalent kilogram of product will make sure that your consumer lives a better, healthier life, mm. um, free of heart disease. Um, yeah. And bonus you don't have to inflict suffering upon billions of sentient beings, yeah. which is a nice part. But yeah, when you think about as a as a species, you know what what we eat, and when you look at illnesses in you know the westernized world, you don't have to look far to see what causes it. And, you know, you can be you can hate animals all you like. You can be selfish and just go, I want somewhere nice to live, and I want to live a long time. Mm. Go vegan. Because that way your biosphere, the the environment that you'll live in will be a nicer place. And because you're not, you know, filling your body with all this processed food and you know, cholesterol and all kinds of other things and weird hormones and all this other kind of other stuff that happens from factory farming, you're going to have a better chance at seeing your grandkids graduate college. Mm. We based it all on um, the blue zones, so the longevity right, yeah. of people, because yeah. I figured more people would listen to that. I mean, you know, <laughs> when you think about uh, how much just methane alone contributes as a greenhouse gas it's just phenomenal mm -hmm. right and you know there's other ways that we can feed ourselves they really are mm. and that it's overall kind of cheaper <laughs> to be honest as well <laughs> chickpeas are cheap brown you know rice is cheap um, and they're delicious yeah <laughs> especially if you come to matcha milk bar we'll turn them into something very yummy <laughs> chickpeas are my favorite vegetable you know, yeah, chickpeas. Nice. My, you can do pretty much everything with chickpeas. You can have it as as a salad. You can bake it. You can you can dry it. You can Hummus. make it into flour. You can bake things with it. You can turn <laughs> it into falafel. Um, you can this make a patty out of it. By Australian chickpeas, mate. Chickpeas. <laughs> that men's health cover is mostly chickpeas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you are now Osha, which yes. is the embodiment of happiness. Trying to be. Trying to be. And what I usually talk about after our way TA and then the things that say nay TA, which you've shared very openly. So I really appreciate that. What is your play TA? So this is looking at the fact that our lives have become very linear. Mm -hmm. They're work and rest. It's on and off. And we've lost sight of that play, mm -hmm. doing things for joy and part of doing the work to keep a healthy brain. And this was a big thing for quelling my anxiety was leaving law, leaving a job that mm. that fueled the anxiety, being around wellness, understanding my brain and doing serotonin creating things like not overstimulating and gardening, being outside, uh, doing jigsaw puzzles, doing things that have no mm. purpose. I know you love Scrabble. Yeah, I do. A lot. Uh, there's cycling? three Scrabble sets on top of that. Uh, oh, I know what I'm we're doing there. for the next couple of hours. So there's, there's a, the, the big one, which happens on this table, and there's a two travelers uh, up on top of that there. They go on the back of my bicycle, and I ride down the street and play tiles with my friend Luke. Also riding. Is yeah, I ride bicycles a lot. Riding bicycles is really good. I really do enjoy the feeling of – that's the other thing about moving your body, uh, which is really important. I, I enjoy lifting heavy things. I used to run a lot. That was my thing. But then but one of the things I didn't mention is that when I was I, – because I was so fat when I was a teenager, my actually the, my femoral head deformed, <gasps> uh, grew. Yeah, I've got a my, – my femoral head, uh, the neck, sorry, the neck of my femur is, is, is deformed. It's got a bend in it um, because I was such a big kid when I, when I went through puberty. And so then I started running all these marathons and da-da-da-da and training for ultras and 
and all this kind of stuff. And then, so once you put all that volume on top of that, eventually the, so I've got arthritic hips now, so I can't run anymore. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, I know, right? But well, that's, you know, that's what I got. Um, but it's okay. So that's I, I, I eat a diet that uh, is kind of conducive to lack of inflammation, so I'm a lot better So you're cancelling it out, yeah? I, well, I try to. So I just <laughs> ride bikes now. And uh, riding yeah. bikes is great. Riding bikes is a very fun thing to do. Oh, do you uh, wear Lycra? Really Nick's enjoy it. just gotten into it, and I'm like, can you not wear the Lycra, please? Um, he does, though. Let me put to you this way. Uh, <laughs> no, only, only when I come home. So if you're if you're if you don't wear lycra, that means you're going to ride for four hours with your shot going. True. In the wind. True. Yeah. Okay. So think, imagine what it's like with your window down in the car. Yeah, not fun. The lycra is there, <laughs> so you don't get that flappy, 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 which is a word. Uh, is that so the yeah, technical word? It is. Yeah, great. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's what the lacquer is there for. Yeah. It's certainly not there to protect you against any kind of collision and I can attest to that. <laughs> oh, uh, no. Yeah. There's, you know, there's, only, there's only two kinds of people, those those who have fallen off their bike and those who are yet to fall off their bike. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've taken my fair share of spills. <laughs> I, do love, I do love to ride a bicycle. I do love to um, – I really enjoy throwing kettlebells around. I do, I do enjoy the swinging the kettlebell. I don't – like the gym that much yeah um it's always full of bad music and and people and some days i'm usually in the mornings i'm and not fans. really i'm not really <laughs> no i don't care about that i'm just more about ah, people some days i'm just like not not quite yet it's too early yeah i haven't got this you know amount of dopamine in my body <laughs> yeah, from that. doing these squats yet to deal with you so maybe afterwards maybe so yeah i just i have a couple of kettlebells downstairs and uh yeah you throw them around yeah, a couple of hundred swings and a, you know, a couple of Turkish get-ups and this, that, and the other, and you'll feel a whole lot better about life Yeah. because once you activate those big compound muscles and your body goes, ah, oh, that's right, we moved for billions, you know, millions of years before we sat down and tried to talk about our problems. Okay, we moving is a bigger part of it. Um, and I just feel better. Yeah. And I, I enjoy the – There's a, you can get kind of tricky with kettlebells and there's something kind of fun about – throwing a 24-kilogram hunk of metal in the air and letting go of it and then catching it with another hand, uh, you know, because if you fuck it up, there's jeopardy there. So it's kind of it's kind of fun. I, it's I like do, those skull crushes where you uh, yeah, your triceps are yeah, yeah. always like, oh, my dear. I do enjoy it, but I do enjoy it. And I, do, I do enjoy the feeling of my body feeling stronger. I do enjoy the feeling of mastering different moves. I do enjoy the feeling of, you know, having strength where I didn't have it. Mm. And as – you get older, you know, I'm in my mid forties now. It's, it's something you it. got to well do done. it. Well, I cheat because I don't smoke and I'm sober no, and vegan. So. <laughs> it's and a I'm pretty s- good example. I'm celiac too. That's the other thing. <laughs> oh, talk yeah. about. I only just found out I'm celiac. So. Oh, that's, Wow! No, it's great. It's great I'm, that I'm I found gluten, out. I'm gluten intolerant, which right. is like made Italy very difficult because okay. I just pushed through. I was like, "Fuck it, I love pasta and pizza. Oh, I'm just going to go right can't at it." Do it. it. I don't <laughs> want the the thing about. You know, as you get older, um, certainly as your bone density starts to taper off after the age of forty, lifting is—you've got to do it. Mm. You've got to keep some meat on you, mm. otherwise you just kind of become frail and you, you end up getting that question mark walk. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you've seen it when yeah. people cross the street in front of you and their body looks like a question mark, yeah. and they're basically staring straight up to look ahead. Yeah, um, you don't the want hunch. that. Yeah. Nobody wants that. Yeah, I promise you, this is how I want it to go. I want it to go fit, 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 dead. Yep. That's it. Yeah. I don't want any kind of, you know, weird palliative, you know, five years sitting in front of the prices right, just waiting to die, wondering why it. my family doesn't visit me. <laughs> I don't want that at all. Yeah. I just want to be like yeah, I want to be I want to be lifting kettlebells and riding my bike 
the day before I die, which will probably happen, touching wood. (laughs) (laughs) Another really cool thing you did that I actually did a really similar thing is your 365-day photography project. I did a 366-day because it was a leap year happiness project where I found a quote for every day that brought joy or brought happiness. Oh, cool. Which was actually just keeping focused on something every day to guarantee that one part of your day was consistent and dedicated to your wellness yeah. is what actually led to the blog, which then became the podcast, which then became the leaving the job and all this stuff. Tell us about the photography. You, you oh. and Nick were nerding right out. Yeah, I've always, I've always shot. There's my, my younger brother has recently, after my mum passed away, he discovered this like Indiana Jones level trove of slides and things that we had never seen and he's undergone this extraordinary project of digitizing all these films and there's yeah there's photos of me with a camera yeah just six and i'm shooting wow like now it's no big deal because a kid's got a phone and a kid takes photos (laughs) but back then it was a big it's a big deal and i've always loved shooting i've always loved you know taking photos and then i wanted to get way way better at at shooting and so i put this restriction on myself and i would encourage anyone that's got any kind of art in their brain or, or whatever. Uh, who was on my show that did it? It was um, Anna Luno. She's a very successful DJ now, but she basically locked herself in a room for a summer and went, I'm going to write a song every day. And didn't have to be a great song, but it was like, I'm going to write a song every single day. And it allowed her to completely master the software and uh, master the craft and see what worked and see what didn't work and da, da, da. And so for me, it was like, I, I want to become a much better photographer. What's going to work? I'm going to take a self-portrait every day for a year. Why self-portrait? Because I'm the most available model I can find. And I want to do it with off-camera lighting. Uh, so that meant I had to, you know, basically rig up a way to have remote flashes and things like that. And because and, I really wanted to be sure that I could light uh, much better. I tried to get, do as little with natural light as possible. So every day, no matter what, before I went to bed, I had to take a shot. I had to do it. And um, it took my photography to a completely different level. And it led me down, you know, incredible paths of exploring all kinds of things. And, you know, yeah, I could really, really enjoyed it. Um, the only photography I do now is the the portraiture I do around my podcast, which is on a, a, a vintage Polaroid camera that I had made for me. And it's on like the very last Fuji FP100 film that exists in the world because uh, I don't make That's it anymore. So cool. And so my brother, who was living in Shanghai at the time, you know, got a couple of hundred boxes for me, which was not cheap. But yeah, I really enjoy it. I, I need to pee. Do you mind if I go and pee? No, go okay, for cool. it. Keeping shit real. Well, yeah, I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard this happen in a couple of episodes. Yeah, yeah, happens. <laughs> Are you back after the break? Uh, <laughs> perhaps. Um, yeah. So I yes. would recommend. I would recommend that anybody give themselves that restriction and the deadline every day. So if you, I don't know. So if you want to be a yoga instructor, write a lesson plan every day and do it every day. If you want to be a financial analyst. Give yourself, set yourself the task of understanding three companies on the stock exchange every single day. If you want to, and just do that, do it for a year, do it for a hundred days. If you want to be, I don't know, renovate houses, write out a, a plan of renovation and figure out your margins and da, 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 do it every day mm. until you become so damn good at it that it's second nature. And that way you'll see possibility where there was never possibility before. And creatively, what I found it to be really powerful for the photography project was that it started to affect other things I did in my day, other other parts of my life in really wonderful ways because it started to exercise that creative muscle in my head really powerfully. Mm. And I, I just became, I became better at my job. I became better at all kinds of things. Yeah, it was good. It was really good. I thoroughly recommend it. 
And you also meditate. You're a vegan oh. meditator, which I also am. And that's also changed my life. <laughs> I try. I try like many people. I try. Yeah. I try. I try. I try. I try. Look, 20 minutes twice a day. It's a big commitment. Yeah. I, I, I can't do that much. You know, I, I just have to be okay with the fact that I might only be able to get three breaths in before I wander. But when I bring my head back and I take the first breath again, like it's that moment between bringing the, bringing the brain back and back to the breath, that's... That's the work. That's the lifting the kettlebell. That's where it is. The, the, the wandering is the resistance of the weight and the bringing back is the lifting of the rep. Just the breathing part in the middle is the rest between the reps. And that's what I'm training. I'm training my brain to keep coming back and not, you know, travel away. And, um, you know, I'll, maybe I'll get to 10 minutes one day. Maybe. At this point, we can always hope. This point, I'm just, you know, <laughs> to be honest, I'm just a couple of seconds at a time, and I'm, I'm just okay with it. It's just a couple of seconds at a time. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah, and so Osha now, yeah. is a husband yeah. to your second wife, mm-hmm. uh, Audrey, yeah, and stepfather mm-hmm. to Georgia. Mm-hmm. How is family life? How do you? Are you accessing happiness? Is it still a struggle? And is no. it still, I listened to Audrey's episode recently, which <sighs> is a great episode for anyone who is curious about the supporting side. Because I think actually being the partner of someone going through mental health struggles is almost harder because you yeah. can't you can't make it all go away. No, and, no. I was really grateful that Audrey did that. Uh, that allowed. I'm grateful that she let me write in the book about some of the more uh, difficult parts of what it is to be dating someone on meds and also that she did that, that she would come on this show on my, my podcast and, and tell her side of what it was like. As far as you know, happiness, as someone who used to experience hypermanic states, what I thought was happiness wasn't happiness. Mm-hmm. It was, I don't know, like I'd snorted a couple of bags of drugs and then went on a roller coaster. Uh, that ACDC happened to be playing on at the same time, you know, with a guest guitar spot from Prince uh, in a, you know, porn shoot. Right. (laughs) It was that level of everything at once, all right? And that's what I thought happiness was. It's not, and it's a completely unsustainable state. And as I started to experience happiness again, I was like, at first I was, I'm not going to lie, at first I was a bit, oh. Oh, that's... Oh, this isn't, this this isn't what it used to be, but... And then I remind myself, it's utterly uns- I, I completely can't handle that state at all. I can't handle that state to be around. I can't do it. And now more and more I'm finding this because it's a, almost a new thing as well to have this kind of new feeling of happiness. It's like, oh, it's a much nicer, kinder, more long-lasting mm. thing. As far as being a husband and, and a father to Georgia, um, you know, she has a, her biological father and you know i'm I'm a stepfather and i look as far as i'm concerned you know i'll do anything for that kid uh you know having that was huge huge for me uh one day she was my girlfriend's kid the next day i was like i would push you out of the way of a bus if i needed to you said you woke up one day and it just yeah. was like it was oh one day to the next oh my god it was one day to the next like yeah. a you know switch in my brain just went that's it that yeah, selfless time yep she's my, it's no longer she's about my you. person yep it's no longer about you it's all about her and that was it one day to the next and yeah, i'm so grateful that I get to live a life where I can work for and, and provide for these two extraordinary people who have brought me so much. She was 10 when I met her. Mm-hmm. She's just 10, 10. And she's nearly 15 now. So, wow. yeah, it's really, she's now actually taller than me. 
Oh, what's uh, happened? Yeah, well, puberty oh, and great yes. nutrition. <laughs> yeah. And so what is your ultimate yay? What makes you yay? Or what kind of situation rushing home to after work would you say is a yay? Watching. Or how do you seize your yay? Another way to say it. My ultimate yay is watching Gigi. She just spent um, five weeks on exchange in Buenos Aires. Oh, yeah. is that the Spanish on the wall? That's why the Spanish on right. the wall. Yeah, she's written Spanish words on the wall. Nice. And hearing her and, and seeing her at the age of 14 and a half go, yep, I'm off to another country where they don't speak English. That we've managed to, you know, I've been a part of it um, for only a couple of years, but to be able to give this kid that gift of not only the opportunity, but also that she's emotionally able to go, I'm out, and comes back going, all right, I'm moving back there. Um, here's my plan. Here's how it's going to happen. Going, fuck yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, because what else is that? We just want to leave the world a little better. We want our kids to have it better than we do. That's how we all ended up here. Mm. That's how we ended up with you know sewerage and housing and healthcare and stuff because we went, yeah, I don't want this to happen to my children. Let's make it a little better so they don't have to deal with this. That's how everything that our society enjoys is because every parent went, oh, I'll make it a little better for the kid. And so to see that, Oh, I'm just thrilled. That, you know, just makes me so happy, and oh. that I'm I'm really grateful that I get a chance to do that. I'm so grateful that I get to be a part of. You know, I love paying her school fees. I'm grateful for it. Mm. You know, because I'm getting to give this kid this chance, give this opportunity to this kid. It's not about me. That's amazing. I'm thrilled. I'm really really happy that that's that's my biggest biggest yay oh that's that. awesome yeah absolutely and just to finish up i just ask everyone what are three interesting things about them that aren't usually brought up in the interview kind of context but then you've obviously written a book so there's probably not a lot left but is there anything about you like a tattoo or yeah i always think there are things okay. people just never get to say so three interesting things about me would start with number one i'm uh a lot more nerdy than you think I am. I measure my coffee out by the gram. Right. I time the draw. I make sure that we get beans only when we can use them because the freshness of the beans is very important. Right. I'm way nerdier and I'm nerdy about cameras. I'm nerdy about cars. I'm nerdy about... I'm nerdy about nuclear power. I'm really nerdy about nuclear power. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> this is intense, Osha, coming forced, out. <laughs> I'm nerdy about fourth-generation molten salt reactors um, oh, that mate. run off the runoff spent nuclear fuel. Um, I'm nerdy about that sort of thing. I really am. You're in good company. I really love that We're kind of We're nerd shit. burgers, major right. nerd burgers. I'm really, I'm really nerdy for that kind of stuff. I'm really nerdy for fascinating models of, of, of uh, socioeconomic change. I'm nerdy for that kind of stuff. I'm, uh, I'm nerdy about you know constantly checking my privilege, checking my white, male, straight, middle-class, Western mm. life. And, you know, things that I think might be good. It's like, well, why does a 24-year-old woman with three kids living in Jakarta think about that? She doesn't give a shit mm. about my soy milk. <laughs> she wants to... She's you like, curdled my almond got, milk. I've got, I've, got th- I've got three kids, two parents, and his parents and my parents living in a one-bedroom flat. Yeah. You and your sustainability thing, take a back seat, pal. People are hungry right here. It's like, okay, all right. And like being really aware that, you know, I live you know, a life of unbelievable privilege and I have the choice to, you know, 
I just go down to Coles. And da, da, da. So I'm nerdy about that kind of shit. I actually um, think being adopted is like an inbuilt reminder all the time right. of the parallel of like I could have grown up in South Korea, which was a third world country at the time. Mm. And just stroke of sort of like the demographic lottery, I kind of won the allocation mm. lottery and yeah. ended up in Australia. Yeah, yeah, and that, yeah. So I'm nerdy about that. I'm, unfortunately, unfortunately, I'm so sorry. I'm way more serious than I should be. <laughs> I really am. I'm way too serious. I think about serious stuff way too much. You're and a I would, thinker. I would like to be less so. I would like to just, you know, come home, sit in front of the TV. Turn it on, turn it off, go to bed. I can't. It's very hard. Um, yeah, do you watch any brainless TV? Do you watch your own episodes, actually? I only tweet them. Oh. I live tweet. It's really fun. No, I don't really watch many. No, Audrey and I, we, watch, we watched all Survivor, which was amazing. Oh. Um, Survivor's an amazing television show. Yeah. Can you watch reality TV without being coloured by knowing, you know, all of Survivor's what's happening in the game. background? Survivor's a different game altogether. Okay. Any kind of TV, like any reality TV, any competition TV, yeah. so I've got a, you know, yeah, <laughs> I've got a fair idea. Like once, once you know how the sausage is made, you know how the sausage. Yeah, you can't watch it. It's just, know, a, it's, it's just a consumer no, anymore. No, I, I really appreciate it for the craft of it. Um, I don't know what's another thing people may not know, but they know I like to play Scrabble. They know I'm. I don't know. Oh, that's the best thing about the book is you haven't really left much out. No, it's all. It's all really. It's really all there. And I can't wait to see it musically yeah, as well. <laughs> is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, uh, there's a couple of bangers in there, a couple of hits. I'm uh, so excited. Yeah, it's got the one of the more interesting trigger warning songs because we, we've got a trigger. We had to make a trigger warning, so we made a trigger warning song. Oh, my God. It's pretty weird. <laughs> uh, oh, I'm excited. Yeah, and what's amazing is uh, uh, Mike, uh, who's also known as Toe Hider, he's the guy that's done all the music for my podcast since day dot. And um, right where you're sitting right now, Zoe Norton Lodge said, I wish you do a trigger warning song. She goes, yeah. And it should sound like the Andrews Sisters. Andrews Sisters um, did um, Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy from Company. Oh, it's like yeah. that kind of late World War II era jazz fusion, close, tight harmonies. So I wrote it out and I sent it off to Mike. And then like three hours later, Mike goes, here it is. <laughs> and it's the same with the big power ballad that ends it that I was talking about before. So, oh, know, so I wrote good. it. I wrote the lyrics in the morning, <laughs> and then by one p.m. that day, he'd sent it. He's, will this do? I'm like, will this do, mate? John Bon Jovi would claw over C.C. Deville and the guys from Extreme for this power ballad. That's how good it is. Yeah. So I'm trying to figure out how to get Pyro into the show, but I don't know if you can oh. blow things up at Chapel off Chapel. You might be able to. I used to have a Pyro license back in the day. You don't Shut to, up. No, I did. Yeah. You don't want to fuck around with that stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Crazy journey. I've been very lucky. Um, I've been very lucky. Uh, to to do what I do. And, you know, I mean, you see where we live. We have a humble apartment. We don't, you know, I don't have a three-car garage and I, I don't drive a Tesla. I have a, a second-hand 2012 Nissan Leaf that I, <laughs> you know, I drive an EV and, you know, and EVs are amazing. And if you, when you buy your next car, make sure it's an EV. That's nice. the that's the number one thing I tell people. We'll t- uh, is that your number one that's piece my of advice? One. Yeah, your takeaway, everyone? Maybe eat eat less Run meat. It down. Eat less meat and make your next car an EV. <laughs> Without a shadow of a doubt, because uh, you may as well be be the early adopter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the very last question is your favorite motivational quote. So I always share as I, I still continue this quote of the day. So I do one every day on my my favorite social. my favorite motivational quote. Which I've dedicated a few to you, actually, oh, in the last couple of weeks. Your support yeah. is, is very sweet. I'm very grateful <laughs> I'm for so it. I'm so just so excited about what you're doing. I'm I think quite humbled incredible. by it, to be honest. <laughs> um, 
My, my favorite motivational quote, well, I'll just give you the one today. The one today would come from my mentor. He would, whenever I was having a pity party, there was only four words, two pieces of punctuation, one comma, one question mark. So what? Now what? Ah. So whenever you're having a little pity party, I'm just fucking... <laughs> okay. What? Now what? What do you choose to do now? What are you going to choose to do? What a wake-up Are you going to choose to... That's amazing. Because if you stay in that, no, fucking this person did that, you can do that <laughs> and you won't move. You will stay there sometimes for years. Yeah. Oh, this person fired me and I never had a job. They left me. Great. But when you're in a victim space, you're powerless. You can't go anywhere. You can't do anything. You're stuck there. Mm. And guess what? You'll, you'll turn 40, you'll turn 50, you'll turn 60, and that'll be your story. Or you can go, okay, that happened. What am I going to do now? Now I can move away from that. So, yeah. So what? Amazing. Now what? What a great way David's to finish. David's his name. Yeah, he's a good guy. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This has been a very different journey to seizing your yay than everyone else so far but i'm so so grateful for you sharing so openly and letting us into your home thank you so much and i will share details of how to see you live on december 14 in melbourne and on how to get osha's amazing book back after the break thanks heaps we're doing a gig in sydney on the 28th of october and brisbane february 8th oh brizzy rio de janeiro my hometown (gasps) Oh, yes. B-Town. Yeah, yeah. And you, are you working on other locations? I trying to, trying yeah. to, but I'm not Kendrick Lamar, though I wish I was. I mean, you're nearly there. Well, hardly. <laughs> but people go, oh, you should do a show in Gladstone. Or you should do a show in, you know, <laughs> Wagga. Some remote town. Like, I can. Look, I really can. I can do a show in Gladstone and I can do a show in Wagga and I can do it just for you. Your ticket will cost $5,000. But I can do it. You know there'd be people out there. Oh, I doubt it highly. <laughs> no, I, you know, it's just the economics of touring independent theatre. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, not, it's, yeah. it's, it's not a charity. I've got to pay Mike. I've got to pay Rachel. I've got to pay the venue. Yeah. So it's better when it's somewhere that's like two or 300 people can go to because that <laughs> yeah. way, you know, you can only charge 35 bucks a ticket and people can come along. It'll be all right. And how can people find out more or send you messages or how can they support uh, your podcast? I prefer Semaphore or... Um, your smoke signals are generally good. No, just follow me on Instagram. It's the best way to go. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. As you can probably tell, I could have just kept going for hours and hours, but you'll just have to get a copy of the book for yourself to find out more. Links on how to buy it and tickets to the live show are in the show notes now. And as I said, there is so much more detail than we could fit into this episode, even though this one was pretty detailed. I was so worried about doing him justice and I bumbled along a little bit, but I hope you got to know a different side of Osha and a different perspective on happiness. I still can't believe we got to sit in his home and chat so openly. What an absolute trooper for sharing his story. And thank you to his beautiful wife, Audrey, for allowing us in the home and spending some time with us at the beginning as well. I really hope you enjoyed. Please let Osha and me know what you thought. We love to hear feedback and reactions, particularly as this was a little bit of a different episode to what we've had so far. Please do subscribe as well. That would be amazing. So you can get updates as soon as they're out on all the new episodes and keep sharing the screenshots that you've been taking of each episode. That's been absolutely amazing to see. And I think for this one in particular, it could really help someone else see the light or reach out for help or have their experience validated and really provide the support that 
that people need to get through their mental health journey and to return to seizing their yay. So I hope you've enjoyed and I will touch base with you for the next instalment of Seize the Yay.